0: Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation about the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at seechangehappen.co.uk. That's s-double-e-changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and their usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 54, with the title, Everyone Should Feel As Though They Belong Are Welcome and Valued. And today I have the absolute honor and privilege to welcome Essie Hardy. Essie describes herself as a trainer, consultant, event speaker, and advocate for disability inclusion in the workplace. When I asked Essie to describe her superpower, she said, the ability to make intangible ideas around disability inclusion tangible. Hello, Essie. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me.
0: It's an absolute pleasure. I mean, we've had a good chat in the green room beforehand, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So, Essie... Tell me, everyone should feel as though they belong are welcomed and valued. What does that mean to you?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think that there is kind of this, this status quo and quote norm about what being welcome and valued should should be. Um, I always say to people that you can't make anybody feel included. Inclusion is a feeling that com- comes from beneath, oh, um, in between. <laughs> Inclusion is a feeling that comes from within. So if we don't feel included, it's because what society or what that business or what that organization is doing to not help us to be included. So uh, so businesses should be doing their utmost to create an environment that is open to everybody. So that if people walk in, they can immediately, for me, for me, inclusion is taking a breath of fresh air. So walking into a room or in my case, going in in my wheelchair because I'm physically disabled and not feeling as though I have to start mitigating all the barriers that I'm facing as soon as I enter that building. Whether it is people's attitudes of not wanting to talk to me, whether it is getting near to the space in which I want to engage in a conversation, whether it's finding a way to um, make other people feel okay when I'm not going to have the buffet that's presented um, or, you know, a, a, a number, a multitude of other things, including if I need to go to the loo. Is the loo situation, is the accessible toilet going to be in a place where I can get to it without much help, without making much of a big deal about it, about everybody else? And also, once I'm in that toilet, am I going to be able to manage? And that, you know, all these things, I think they sound like they're separate things, but they're all part of a wider um a wider feeling of that inclusion and therefore belonging. Because let's say me, for example, if I walk in a room and I'm immediately thinking, oh, I don't know how much I can drink because you know I don't know if the loo is going to be accessible when I get there. Therefore, I'll drink less so I don't need to go. That stops, that, that prevents me from being able to engage in the conversation. If I walk into a room in my wheelchair and people go, oh, she's in a wheelchair, we won't talk to her because she obviously doesn't have anything to say, then I immediately am having to compensate for that by not just relaxing and being part of the conversation, but by always thinking, okay, how is our, our, our everybody else? going to interact with me and how can I make them feel comfortable so I think that that inclusion promotes and supports that sense of belonging because when you feel relaxed in that environment then you you're going to feel as though you belong more because you feel as though that environment and the people that put that event together has support has thought about you thought about your needs and thought about how you're going to feel in that space
0: so true uh- I've got a confession that uh, you have educated me beyond belief, not through any training course, not through any proactive education, but just by allowing me to be by your side and travel with you, have meals with you, drink with you, go to parties, have Christmas with you at once, uh, just by being with you. I learned so much that I had never appreciated before. And I, I, I learned about able-body privilege. We often describe privilege as something you don't have to think about. I never thought about walking. I never thought about my route from A to B without having to overthink it. And I suddenly realized I spent a day with you in London getting on and off a bus, getting on the underground, walking up steps, going into buildings. And this was not an educational session. This was you just living your life and me being with you. Whereas maybe in the past, when I've been with people who had a disability or a disabled person, person with a disability, however we describe people these days, it was always in the moment. It was never in their life. And to, yeah. to, to feel and experience what you your challenges on a daily basis in society – this, as you as you would always say, society disables you, not your just, you, you, not your your physical yeah. side. Yeah. Uh, to understand that, just I remember being on the bus, and how the guy almost on the bus driver almost tutted when he had to put the ramp down. It was almost like an inconvenience. <laughs> that really, and I thought, wow, wow, that was that's your lived experience on a daily basis. Mm. And uh, the other thing I remember was being in upstairs in Waterloo at the Waterloo station, we we had that drink and we were having a and I, I remember because you're fiercely independent. You're you're you don't want people to mother you or be around or overly um look after you. I remember we're drinking away and he just I said, Joe, do you mind putting my shoe back on? And <laughs> I thought, ah, yeah, sure, I could put your shoe back on. And it's just it's little things like that. You just never appreciate But unless you're around somebody and understand that that, that their needs, and I think you you taught me about able body privilege without educating me, if like just Mm -hmm. by being with you, by by being your friend, if you like.
1: I'd also just like to clarify for your audience. I don't go to the pub and just take my shoes off to get comfortable. My shoe had fallen off. Can I just make that point that I wasn't just like, oh, oh I'm yeah. just scorched yes. out in Waterloo Station and take my shoes off and then get Jane to put them back on when I need to go? Um, you're absolutely right. Absolutely. And I think that it's what's interesting to me is that Absolutely. That is one of my biggest areas of oppression. And we've talked about that mainly from a physical perspective, but you've talked about that in terms of attitudes as well. So the bus driver who sighs when he sees somebody that he actually does not or she doesn't even have to move to do anything for, but she literally has a button next to her that she can press and the rap drops down. I mean, it is that simple, but it's still, you know, as far as they're concerned, it's a ball ache. Um, and the barriers um, are compounding the the lack of um, access for the physical environment for disabled people on a daily basis. And I think it's really important that we don't forget those internalised biases that we as disabled people hold about ourselves as well. The general public and society, they all have opinions about disability and what disability is, and therefore what disabled people can achieve. But we, as disabled people, a lot of the time because of the same reasons, because of the media, because of what we've been told going through school and everything, we have internalized biases and what we call internalized ableism. oh, I won't do it like this because this will make me more disabled, but actually it'll also make my life a lot easier. And so we forgive we let the general public off, and we forgive people for doing these things that that actually are not acceptable. Forgive them for making us go in the side entrance of the door. Forgive the bus driver for driving off because they can 't be bothered to lower the ramp or find an excuse for it because for us, the internal because we 've internalized that bias ourselves that it 's our problem that we find a way to 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 kind of mitigate that feeling in our minds. But I think what 's really important in going back to your original question about the kind of that sense of belonging and inclusion when a let's say in this case kind of an event business has created an event and has thought about the needs of disabled people then it almost lifts that internalized bias away because it's saying to the disabled person you are valuable you are equal we have thought about you and these are the ways we're looking forward to engaging and interacting with you in our venue as well so i think from that point the, the there's so much that we can do as disabled people and as non-disabled people to support everybody to feel as though they belong and that they're equal in that belonging as well.
0: Hmm. I think it's also making sure you're engaged with people who have disability in order to to test out your your process, to test out your event, test out your venue. Because a lot of things I'd never considered, you know. I think you, you highlighted to me once that there's an assumption that you'll have a PA with you. And so that person will help you manoeuvre, help you push a button. But from my understanding, you have limited dexterity, dexterity in your arms and you can't lift them up above a certain height. So when the, when the lift call button is, for you, above a certain point, you can't touch it. And you can't necessarily rotate your chair within the space either. And it's a whole other thing. So there's almost this assumption that you, you either have to reverse in or you have to be pushed in or you have to be maneuvered. And so to understand when no, I, I now look at the world with a different lens thinking, could, could actually do that? And I'm thinking, No, Essie would struggle in this venue. Essie would struggle getting up that step. Essie would never be able to get to the toilet here without asking for help, and that's that's the demeaning thing. It's the needing to feel that you have to ask for help. You want to have that agency. You want to be able. If you want to go to the loo, you want to go to the loo when you want to do. The same way I would, I would just sneak off. I I wouldn't have to ask for reinforcements
1: yeah announced you're absolutely right i mean an example of that i was i was out with my friend the other night and i needed to go to the loo and i saw what i thought was the door to the accessible loo and so i was waiting for um somebody to the um uh the woman behind the counter to open the door for me um and she i was like where is she and i looked over and she's waiting somewhere else where the loo actually was so i was waiting at the wrong door and where the accessible loo actually was, was behind a table where there were eight people sitting. And it was literally at the table. And so all these people had to get up and move in order for me to go to the loo. So I was thinking, and then I couldn't lock the door in the loo. It was unlockable. Um, and then I was thinking, you know, these people are going to know how long I'm in this loo for. And actually, am I all right with that? And then when they come out... They're going to know, oh, she's finished now, she's been a while. I wonder if it's a poo and it'll smell in there. But actually, it just takes longer because of the access or the lack of thought of access that's inside the loop. And um I think, you know, I think, you know, when you said before, you know, um people assume that other people will do things or they'll assume it'll be okay that way. I think that people, when they're building these things without talking to disabled people, talking with people with lived experience, they're not thinking at all. They're thinking, we'll do that. That's a job done. Tick that box. We'll move on to something that we consider to be more important, like a great IT system or whatever it is for that company. But they I think that that sometimes the, some, the, the assumption that somebody else will do it for people is even going that one step too far. It's about we know we have to do it legally therefore we've done it let's move on and do something else and i think that's what happens in so many cases that actually they don't think and i don't think it's deliberate i think that people when they're designing they just don't think these things through or for example you know an example would be of how they could have done it differently in that pub for example is oh i know the accessible loose there so let's not put a table around that in order for a disabled person to be able to access that loaf as well without having to ask people to move and slowing down their experience, but also so they can have so they can have some privacy and it 's about stopping to think about what is going to make an experience equal to the experience of a non disabled person in this in this case, um, so how can I equitably think about the situation how can i create processes that are fair in the situation in order for that experience to be equal for the person who's going to be experiencing it
0: yeah it's also things like spacing of tables and adequate gaps between backs of chairs and yeah. I, I remember yeah, I mean, I was, it's, it's,
1: uh, it's it's absolutely everything joe it's it's an it's, uh, um it's what's the word it there's no end to the the amount of things you can do to make things inclusive and i've started thinking about kind of when people say to me oh you know we want to make it truly accessible i said well there's there's no way that you can make something truly accessible because every disabled person is unique and you can't make something truly inclusive because everybody's um understanding or feeling of that word inclusion is slightly differently. Um, And we are, you know, I I wanna also point out that we are talking very specifically about physically disabled people and wheelchair users. But we also have to add on top of that people with sensory impairments, people with learning disabilities, people with mental health disabilities um, and everybody with invisible disabilities as well. So actually, if you have to stand up for a long time, um, period. For example, how is that going to affect your invisible fatigue, and therefore, how well are you going to be able to engage later on in the conversation that's going on? So it's thinking about all, and you're absolutely right. That's why it's so important to always engage people, and not just engage, but uh, but co-produce with people with lived experience. Um, And so you're getting that experience to support you to understand what needs to happen to make it work for every single person.
0: You're so right about the sensory uh, challenges as well. I, I mean, I've got a friend who is blind. I've got a friend who is deaf. And my, my my friend who's deaf, she has a an assistance dog, and she has all these challenges where her her dog isn't good enough because it's not a guide dog for the blind, it's a it's a hearing dog for the deaf, mm-hmm. uh, an assistance dog. Her dog doesn't isn't 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 good enough to be included into restaurants, and she have a, She has a certificates and cards. She get she has troubles getting uh, taxi rides for her for assistance dog getting into restaurants. She's turned away. But but as soon as you have the kind of the guide dog jacket, it's kind of like, yeah, wherever you like, but uh, an assistant dog for someone who's deaf is like, well, second class and she's often frustrated and just traveling around London with her for a day, understanding how you can't take a dog on an escalator, how you have then have to find the lift or or stairs, the challenge she has when she gets on a train with her, with the passenger assistance person and they're asking someone to move out of the accessible seat and the the tuts and oh you don't look very disabled why do you need to sit here something oh and my friend joe is sitting next to me by the way so I'm like oh, i feel guilty that i'm now sat with her having displaced somebody there's a whole stigma around the disruption you caused if i wanted to be accepted isn't there yeah
1: yeah and you know that's your responsibility and then you know I mean, that's a really good example, and that kind of, it really, really highlights and goes back to the point I was making before about why disabled people have this internalised bias and internalised ableism, because everywhere we go, everywhere we turn, every cornerstone of our life, since, you know, we either acquired our disability or were born, is all about, oh, no, you're in the wrong, you're wrong, you need to change to be fixed, or you're causing a problem. And so no wonder we end up thinking, oh, yeah, no, I am the problem. I'll just stay quiet.
0: Yeah, people huff, you're in my way, you slow me down, I'm in a rush. Oh, and now you're here in front of me. That's all I need today, isn't
1: it? Yeah. And, then, you know, even it's, it's you, know, there's, you know, it's those little things about, you know, let's say we're trying to get to an event in London. So we, we start at Waterloo and we need to get over to, I don't know, for argument's sake, I don't know, Chelsea. Let's say it'll be a really good event in Chelsea um, with really nice food and cakes. Um, but, you know, maybe, you know, if we take you and I, Joe, it might take you. I don't know exactly which tube you need to get. But it might take you half an hour on the tube and maybe a five minute walk at the end. It, it would take me the same journey, let's say, up to an hour and a half. Um, because of the tube stations, they're inaccessible. Um, because of the, when I go to a train station, I have to wait at the barriers for somebody to let me through because I can't physically press the ticket my uh, the ticket machine to let myself through. So somebody needs to let me through, and yet it might only take ten seconds, but then that's lots and lots of ten seconds. The as a physically disabled person, and I'm imagining as a sensory impaired person. Um, the general public are not watching out for a wheelchair user and they're not necessarily watching out for a stick. So people walk and look eye line; they don't look down. So the amount of times I have to stop and let somebody pass and move to the side, again, adds on the time. And so you've arrived at your venue and maybe also, before I talk about the venue, maybe also there's some pavement works. Um, And so there's literal bollard barriers up there that perhaps you can step onto the road and walk down, but they haven't thought about how to make that path successful. So I've been round three other roads, but still can't find a way down. So now I've to change my route again. And so then you arrive at the venue and you look really professional and really expert because you're 10 minutes early and you're all calm and, and um, gathered and everything ready to talk. I arrive at my venue half an hour late and flustered. And so then it impacts on how people perceive the two of us. Oh, Joe made it really, really easy, but Essie is a disabled person. Oh, it's so hard. And even if people you know, acknowledge that, that was nothing to do with me, they're still thinking, oh, God, it's a pain in the ass getting a wheelchair, use it here. And this is all unconscious, but it's all still going on. And this prevents the opportunities for disabled people um, in careers um in education in general engagement
0: i mean, i as i i as i said, as I said earlier i i have able body privilege i can walk but i'm getting to the point i'm in my late 50s now i am not particularly fit i've put on a few pounds well I say a few a lot of pounds over covid over the lockdown yeah, we
1: all have so way. i
0: recognize that i i'm not as agile as I, as I once was 10 years ago when I was at my tennis. And I was traveling to Newcastle the other week for a couple of nights, and so I had some luggage with me, not only my suitcase, but also the laptop and a few other bits and pieces of my handbag and things. And so I went into, from where I live in, into Victoria Station, and Victoria is has uh, lift access to all platforms, or it appears to have. And I was going to King's Cross, which is also fairly accessible from my experience there. Uh, but the route to go from A to B in Victoria was convoluted. There's a lot of levels, a lot of lot of rabbit runs, and you're looking at signage trying to think, where do I go next to get from – am got to go from that level to this level, then that lift to get me to that lift. Whereas if I just got up steps or the escalator, I'd have gone straight up almost. But to get the accessible route with, with lifts took me 20 minutes, probably more, to follow that path. So I pretty and I thought, well, why should I struggle up the steps with my bag and hump it up and like I normally do, feeling get to the top and go, oh, I'm exhausted now. I thought, no, let's use a legitimate route. And I, I suddenly thought again, as I'm doing this, I thought this is the route that people who have a disability who can't use the steps do all the time. And I had the I had the choice to either lug or to take that route. You don't have the choice; you can only take one route. And it really brought it home to me again about. The stations that don't have that access, you know, Waterloo is not a particularly accessible station you can't use an escalator even even you have to about four sets of stairs before you can get to the escalator can't you in waterloo i
1: think uh, there's a lift in waterloo but it's hidden behind the escalator uh, so if you don't know where the lift right. is i mean this is another thing there's no clear signage as well so it's not easy yeah. to go to a station you haven't been to before and know where you're going um but i think you've made a really really good point there that actually being Um, accessible and inclusive for disabled people doesn't just support disabled people, it supports everyone. If there's a ramp instead of stairs, it's not like non-disabled people can't get inside, but it just means that disabled people can also get inside, and so on and so forth. And I am very aware that we're talking, and almost deliberately, we're talking, um, because I am physically disabled, we're talking about the physical disabilities, but I am not... Um, mitigating those barriers that are presented for people without physical impairments Um, just specifically talking about physical impairments because that's my experience but I know for example my friend Lorna um, I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning her name um, she is physically disabled but she also has dyslexia so whilst I can look at a sign and think, OK, that's the train I need to get to. OK, that's a sign for the lift. OK, I know I need to do three left and then one right. Or even when I'm asking directions on the street. OK, that person's told me I turn left at the Iron Duke pub. Lord, it really um, it doesn't support Lorna because of her... Dyslexia, she cannot read a sign. And if somebody says turn left at the Iron Duke pub, she's like, Well, what's the Iron Duke pub? And what does that look like? And how do I know when I've got there? Um, Because she can't read those communication signs that perhaps somebody without dyslexia. So going through London with her really kind of opened my eyes again to the even more compounded barriers um, that an ableistic or a world that doesn't think about. Um, access for disabled people
0: has created you said, you said at the beginning that uh you, you you can detect when people don't want to engage with you or see it looks difficult or um or making judgments about you this yeah we shake hands as a kind of a, well maybe before covid we did but people go to shake your hand and that can make people kind of nervous as well, can't it? Because you you don't shake hands in a traditional way.
1: Yeah. So I um, I'm left-handed, and although none of my limbs work very well they all work a little bit and my left hand works better and the, the top half than, than anything else um so i kind of do this it, it's almost like a fist when i present it to a person It comes out as a fist so quite often people do a fist bump and then i've had recently and um, because i'm also a brown person that somebody's like bumped me and gone respect I was like, and I actually said to that person, well, that's not actually respectful. I wasn't trying to do, you know, the Jamaican respect. I was trying to shake your hand. Um, and you know, they, I said it in, in, because I know that they didn't mean offense by it, but I think all these mixed messages from that non-disabled person who didn't know what they were going to be greeted with, and I think was just trying to match me, um, it's really, really difficult for both sides to know how to get it right. Um, and what I do is I usually say either, you know, it's quite good in, in kind of um, restrictions that you don't have to shake people's hands anymore because, you know, you don't have to touch. It's becoming less of a norm, which makes it more accessible for me. And it's like, do you, do you like to have a hug? And I don't like to have a hug anyway, so I just say no. Um, but if they do want to shake my hand, I have to take over and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it, so it's successful. And then, for you know, what happens is that impacts on our energy levels. So if we're doing that 10 times a day, if I've I've explained to you, I've educated you by talking to you about how I'm going to shake hands, and then I go into a room and I have to overcompensate for the fact that I'm a wheelchair user, and really, really make an effort to say, oh no, no, I'm not going, I don't need a coffee, because quite often I try to walk past a group of people in a networking environment. Oh, sorry, do you want to get to the coffee? No, no, I want to join your conversation. But they've already stopped, so it's about restarting that conversation Um, and so on and so forth and making sure I'm at the right place, explaining to somebody that I partnered up with for an activity that this is how I need it to be done. It's exhausting. And so at the end of the day, we are exhausted and then you can you have on top of all of that at the venue everything that we've talked about so far and it's not like i'll have a break and then i'll do that tomorrow you have to do it all at the same time um disabled people we get exhausted all the time um i talk about it um as an invisible backpack so we have a we have kind of almost that open suitcase of barriers that everybody knows about and we can see, but if we have the invisible backpack of barriers as well that we don't talk about because we wouldn't be able to say anything else essentially, um, because they take up the whole day um, that people don't understand but they they kind of weather on our energy on a on a short term basis but also a long term basis and therefore our um, not just the ability, but our desire to then do it again the next day, so instead of thinking, oh my god i 'm going to go into London four days in a row, I think, "Oh, can I actually be bothered to go through all of that again i 'm just going to miss that one um, and people think like this disabled people and i 'm not not just disabled people. you know I think lots of people with lots of different experiences, they probably go through similar things, um, but we think about these things all the time. And so, from a from a kind of a more diverse inclusion point of view, I think it's up to us all as society to take the responsibility to think: what else is going on for that person? How are they experiencing this? And without knowing the intricate details of everything they're experiencing, what can I do to to help that person feel as though they're at the right place? and that they're going to be they're going to enjoy themselves when they're here and that it's worth making all that effort for
0: yeah i'm sure you you probably find that people just see your disability without seeing the you you know that the human being and, and maybe i i find this sometimes that people think all i want to talk around talk about is is being trans and they send me articles all the time on, oh, have you seen this article about being trans? It's like, thank you. It's like a cat bringing <laughs> yeah. in a mouse every day, going, oh, look what I found you.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I always say, well, have you read it? Have you listened to it? And they go, no, no, I thought you'd be interested. Well, no, it's for you. It's not actually for me, that education. Yeah. I, I can do my I'm own very research. Very I, very I know who like I, I am. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, and actually that leads on to slightly you know, it made me think of something else. So the other week my friend sent me because she knew that I would want to listen to it, my friend sent me a podcast from BBC Sounds and it was um part of You're Dead to Me, that series and it was a podcast on disability in the Asian world and you know she knew that I wanted to listen to it and that's why she forwarded it to me but she said she noticed that interestingly it was the only podcast on that series with subtitles Um, and none of the other podcasts had subtitles so there was an assumption from the BBC and the people making the subtitles that disabled people only want to listen to anything that's to do with disability and that they would never want to listen to anything else
0: Anyone who knows well, you you, you would want to listen be- to Robbie Williams. You want Robbie Robbie Williams, that's what you want to listen to, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't need subtitles for that. I know all the words of players. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, absolutely but it's it's again, it's it's kind of this assumption that, that as you were saying, you know, as you've rightly said that we categorized, oh, this is for a transgender person. I don't need to look at it because I'm not transgender. This is for a disabled person. Therefore, we'll put this in, but this isn't for disabled people. So we wouldn't bother with all of that stuff. It's about understanding that we're all, we're intersectional with our diversity, but we're also intersectional with our wants and desires and experience it. So as you just said, I am a Robbie Williams fan. Um and that that doesn't have to take away from everything else about me. Or my disability doesn't have to take away from the fact that I'm a Robbie Williams fan or whatever else is going on in my life. So it's you know it's really important to remember that it's so important to be mindful of how we can include people, but also mindful of why they're there in the first place are they there to feel included as a disabled person or are they there to enjoy whatever event you're putting on?
0: And the other hobby you told me about is your your poker playing. You know, yes, is that, yeah. So disabled people play poker. Apparently, this is like shock horror.
1: You know what? This is maybe a bit controversial, but I do love going into a casino and being one of the only person of any diversity in that casino. Because casino cas- casinos, especially poker rooms, generally made up of um, men. Um, men of all kind of makeups but men and so when a woman walks in it's usually they're a partner of the man that's playing and they sit in the court I watch women sitting in the corners playing on their phones and I think well why don't you go and do something else um or why don't you join in never ever have I seen a wheelchair user so it's brilliant because it spooks out the other players and so it gives me an advantage
0: Victoria Cora Mitchell is a well-known millionaire poker player, isn't she? And oh. uh, and you're right. I I spent a lot of time in casinos in my youth, probably too much actually. Uh, and it was it was very much of an ilk uh, at the, the two o'clock. It's, I'm not saying everybody's money laundering, but there seems to be a lot of a lot of restaurant money going through the uh, through the tables yeah. at certain points in the evening. <laughs> um so you can always tell there's a certain community there and it's very few women very few uh well virtually no nobody with a disability that i've ever remembered the tables are too close together they're too crowded the steps down into the place very seedy establishment so yeah but yeah I, 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 why not you, you know, if you it's but again it's stereotypes isn't it people imagine that your life is so and I, I, well, unfulfilling. How could you have time for a hobby? Haven't you got? it having a disability, a full-time job.
1: <laughs> and a hobby that that actually, because obviously, you know, to play in casinos, you have to have a certain amount of money, don't you? So a hobby that actually means that you're financially, you're, that, oh, for argument's sake, in this case, you're financially stable. I know you can argue that you're not very stable financially if you're a gambler, but that's not always the case. We see billionaire gamblers. Um, but... Um, you know, to, to kind of be in that, with that perception that actually also we have a spending power. But as I said, I do use that to my advantage, um, which is quite good. But then when they realise I know what I'm doing, they stop thinking, they almost forget that I'm disabled and think, oh, shit, I need to, oh, sorry, just wearing a podcast. Um, oh, no, I really need to watch <sighs> out for this person. Or sometimes I do rubbishly and I think, oh, I see you've let the whole side down.
0: Um, So there's a bit of both there. Yeah, my my game was mainly blackjack, and I I I love playing the last one or two boxes on blackjack. And there's an immense responsibility because you get the last cards before the dealer, Mm. so you can almost set. You can almost you know if if you if you take a ten, and the dealer's got a three everyone looks at you going that was the dealer's tent it's like oops sorry my bad i let the dealer i let the dealer get blackjack sorry yeah. my fault
1: um so i'd love to have another podcast specifically on blackjack with you because i always wonder whether it's better to sit the next you know on the side just before the dealer or just after the dealer so that's for another podcast
0: yeah and um, but
1: i'd love I, to hear so like, your opinion
0: well, I was like that last box because then nobody else can interfere with any cars yeah. between you yeah. and the dealer. But if you have yeah. the first box, you, you could have You've five other five people other- in your way. Yeah.
1: And all yeah, you yes, yeah, so it's more of an yeah. No, I will remember that for next time. Not that I'm always yeah.
0: Well, favorite, no, that way you play the dealer. You're not playing yeah. with everybody else and the dealer. Well, and
1: you know, and that's yeah, how I might you do. got rid of those awful cards, and they've gone bust, and you've still got an opportunity.
0: Um yeah but there's there's like six decks in a shoe isn't there so it's not like you, you know, yeah. know and you, you go on this sort of probability bias you know you think well there's been four tens already there can't be another one but that's Gambler's fallacy of course there's going to be another one it's says if it's random it's random and, yeah, uh,
1: and house always wins. yeah Um, I used to have a PA who was a croupier before she worked for me um, in Star City in Australia and she told me um, that because we used to go and play occasion I will also us, occasionally we used to go and play Um, and she would or, you know if we sat down at the, at the um, blackjack table people would immediately get up and she'd say that's because we sat down and we disrupted the play which I also thought was so interesting so she said e- blackjack etiquette is to ask permission do you mind if I sit down here before sitting down
0: yeah I was always always say is this box free can I sit here is that yeah. okay
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. interesting. Yeah, maybe we should start a spin-off podcast on you know gambling etiquette and you know best behavior, best practice.
0: Intersectional poker.
1: Intersectional poker. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I well, how about
0: we just have a night out and go to a casino and just have a bit of a laugh? On night? that sounds like a good idea, well, so, doesn't definitely it?
1: Definitely up for any time. I'm up for that. Yes, um, I like the tournaments because then you only lose a um, obviously win um a certain amount because you you play your certain amount and then you play till you're done. And if you're doing well, it'll keep you there for five hours or so. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it can go good. It can go bad. I, I I used to start with with fifty pounds, and that was it. And uh, sometimes I come out with a lot, and sometimes I come out with my bus fare. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so the government is uh, there's a lot of publicity around this National Disability Strategy because there's we look at investment in in minority characteristics or marginalised communities. Disabilities consistently been underinvested, not not just in government but in organizations so this national disability strategy that the government launched was it back in septemberish or something like that what happened you know it was a launch and then it's i've heard i've heard nothing more about it since is it, is it a damn I, haven't, I haven't i've
1: been looking up for the updates i've been kind of reading, you know, looking out for the articles and there's nothing. I think you know, without getting too political I think that this is very... You can't even blame this specific government, but it, it's it's very indicative of governments and disability, really, or governments and anything that's not within what they want it to be, that actually will put that out, it'll shut people up for a few months, and then they'll forget about it. But actually, we're at a stage now that we're not going to forget about it. This disability strategy, from the minute it was released, um, did not... Have any kind of there was there was nothing as substantial in there to say how the change was going to happen or even understanding of what the barriers were. I think they interviewed a maximum of sixteen disabled people i mean you know representing the entire population of the u k um, sixteen um, experiences for disabled people and all of the disability charities or most of the disability charities that they talked to were not you know they weren't um user-led organizations or disabled people's organizations so run by you know people that know best about disability i.e disabled people so from the very beginning the strategy was set to fail and you know there is an argument and like i said not getting too political but there's an argument, is that deliberate? Is that a strategic move so we can say we've done something but then don't have to actually do something? And what it, you know, what it does, Joe, is it further influences, it further embeds to society that, oh, you know, disabled people are not as important as blah, blah, blah. And it embeds kind of the, the feeling that the disability comes low in, in quote oppression Olympics. Because actually, even if the government aren't doing anything substantial, you know, obviously it's not that bad. Obviously, disabled people are just complaining. They could do more if they wanted to, but they just don't want to. And all last year, all in 2020, um, when we were locked down and when we were, when the government was meant to be strategizing to make sure that we all had what we need, disabled people were completely ignored um, from any kind of, strategy or support that was going on whether it was you know how disabled people are going to be treated if they're exempt from wearing masks to social care just do, do Sorry, you think that started on a rant apologies
0: no 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 i'm i'm i, I see if i'm keep the rant going a bit longer oh. so you've got things like the, the invictus games you've got help for heroes which in in one breath and even we've got the Paralympics. In one breath, that looks as though it's raising the profile of people with disabilities, disabled people. But it's only raising the profile of certain parts of disability, isn't it? They're more like the the affluent part of disability or the, the sponsored part of disability, where people, you might argue that if they're taking part in these events, they, they are fairly privileged compared with many people with a lived experience who are maybe born with a disability or acquired disabilities earlier in life that don't have a kind of Navy pensions or Army pensions to fall back on or support organisations. So it's creating a very two-tier disability sort of club, isn't it? Well, I
1: think yeah I do think so and I do yeah definitely I heard something years ago where somebody said to me literally I don't know why disabled people don't get on with more I mean you see these ex-army people that that do everything they want and I just responded well they've got millions of pounds to do it where are millions of pounds and then we'll do everything that we want as well and actually again that's an assumption that people are doing exactly what they want and I think also I think you're absolutely right so I'm not going to repeat what you just said but also not not everybody wants to be sporty so even if we do have the opportunity we don't necessarily want to be there so you're right it it's, it creates a very linear kind of view of disability because it's a certain type of person with certain types of advantages that go in for those games but also certain personality types Um, Because we don't always want to be sporty. And I remember the 2012 Olympic, or Paralympics, sorry, people were saying afterwards, oh, you know, disabled people are so lazy because look at the Paralympics. And it's like, well, actually, you know, it's. (laughs) Where can I start? You know, the isolation is not laziness. Isolation comes from lack of opportunities, lack of provision in order to do something else. So if you don't physically have if you need one if you don't physically have a personal assistant to help you get dressed in the morning how do you get out of your house if you're not physically being going to be engaged in in the interview process when you apply for a job, even if you can uh, get over those barriers of applying for the first place, then you don't have the money to go out and engage in the things that you want to engage in and so on and so forth. You know, I think, you know, games and actually the Paralympics was kind of created by disabled people in the disability movement. But games are brilliant, but you're right. It gives a very linear view of what disability is and also kind of that excitement around the games lasts as long as the games do and then it disappears again
0: yeah i think the only thing i've seen on the news recently that i felt really really positive about was the uh support for people with down syndrome how they're now providing lifelong guaranteed support and care and financial support it, it meant a lot to me because my uh one of my best friends their son is, has Downs, and their son was born at around the same time as, as our daughter. And so I've, I've, I've grown up in a world where my daughter and my son, one of their best friends, has Downs. And we, we went camping, and we've, we've done stuff, so we've known, known uh, Daniel for, for many years. And I, I was ne- even though I was never really aware that the life expectancy of someone with Downs used to be around teenage so many downs people didn't out outlive their parents and I, I remember talking to my friend about this and one of their long-term concerns is what happens when they are not able to look after their son dan he still has needs he's not independent couldn't cook for himself He's not he's, yeah, he's certainly not independent he does work he's got jobs and, and he's very proud of that he's got a girlfriend etc um but they were really worried about what what, what his future would hold and it wasn't until the announcement of the news a couple of weeks ago that I really appreciated the fact that the life expectancy is on the downs now is in their 60s or 70s or even older. I mean, it's, there's no kind of life limit now. So, yeah, it's it, these are the things we've got to start looking at as a society. We've got aging population. My parents are in their 80s. My my. my Father and mother-in-law in their eighties now. My mother-in-law is very infirm; hardly walks. My father can hardly walk either. Even even a two-inch step is a bit is a big challenge for my dad now. Uh, so, yeah, you get into your you know, my age, well, late fifties. You suddenly start realising it's not just around disability in terms of at birth or acquired car crash, whatever it may be. There is also infirmness through age and we, we are growing a population now who are going to be more and more infirm later in life and we, we've got to start investing and putting support in place because i'm now thinking actually that's me as well that's me in 10 15 years time i can't be selfish i can i've got to think about why wasn't i thinking about this 40 years ago when i started doing my pension i should have been thinking about not only my pension but also the social environment that i want to grow up in and i think that's where we're starting to get to now we're starting to realize that it's we can't just keep ignoring this
1: but you know i think i I do agree with you there were two points in there that i want to raise um you can't ignore it just so that you can remind me in a second when i will inevitably forget so the first point is you know it's going to happen to all of us but then a point that you made before was um that you know the government have kind of embedded all these things so that people with Down syndrome are supported um, forever, essentially. Um, but we can't just leave it there. We can't forget that you know what goes into creating good, meaningful support for people. So it's not about what I worry about these things as it means that we create these day centers or these homes and stick people in them and then say, Oh, we're supporting them. But that's not what support is, it's making sure. That people with Down syndrome are part, you know, are collaborating or co-producing their own support. And actually the people delivering that support understand how important that is for people to live the life that they want to, not the one that's handed to them. Um and also the other point that, that you made about, you know, it's gonna to happen to all of us, that you're not wrong. You're absolutely correct. But um I don't think it's good enough for people to think about that because first of all, it means that they only have to start thinking about it for their future, not for their now. You know, we we need to be. We need to be in, but we're not in, and we need to be striving all the time for a society that's equal because we're human beings, not equal because we're going to get there eventually, equal because we want to live in a world where everybody has equal, but, like actual equal opportunities. And we know that, that we we create equitable opportunities in order for the experience to be equal for everybody. So that's what I mean by equal opportunities. <laughs> um. Yeah, we can't just say, oh, well, it'll happen to me one day, therefore I should look out for it. We have to say, well, there's lots of people that are not in such a privileged position as I am. We This isn't good enough. We need to be moving to a world where everybody is has the same advantages.
0: I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I, I think human nature is you tend to see things that are in front of you or around you. If you're not touched by... Disability in any way, then why is it relevant to you? You, 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 Privilege says it's not my concern. Privilege says I've got other things, and I haven't got it easier either. Is what privilege says. Yeah. It's only when your privilege bubble gets a bit burst or distorted one day that you go, "Aha, now I get it." So that's kind of the reality of human nature. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying we should we should use that excuse.
1: Yeah. But we, you know, you know, I'm sure your listeners are the type of people that do it because, you know, we're human beings and we all deserve to be treated equally, um, mm. whatever that means for us. Um, and so, we have the opportunity; all of us have the opportunity to influence out.
0: Yeah, and, and and that's definitely the challenge. We've got to keep the momentum up, keep the keep the stories up, keep hearing and listening. And you're right, it's, it, we can't just keep wait until well. we're in our 50s and go, oh, actually.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, oh, if you well, think about it. Mean, yeah. But also,
1: yeah. It, you're right, hearing and listening, but also doing.
0: Hmm. Yeah. We've got to start hearing the stories. We've got to, you know, we're talking more about, it's not more about dementia support now. People are more focused on that. Again, we're, we're, because we're living longer and, and we're healthier longer, it's almost like a dual cell battery. We go on and on and on until suddenly we stop. And the cliff edge is a lot more defined now, whereas maybe in the past we drifted into old age and things got gradually worse. Now things are – our body is kept alive. We have hip replacements. We can do more. We can do more until suddenly maybe our brain gives in, our heart gives in, or, or something else gives in. And it, it, it all kind of cr- crashes together. So dementia, Parkinson's, hearing, sight, arthritis, joints, etc. So everything starts to come together. At that point in life where we, we where we become we well, become disabled, really, we we, you know, we go back to our two year old self, or we can't do anything for ourselves anymore. We have to be fed, we have to be looked after, and, and yeah, I, I think we as a society have to have to create environments where people can have an expectation of well, a quality of life. And you say not just being stuck in a home, but actually something that is challenging. You know, you can still play poker. You can still listen to Robbie Williams. You're not sat in a bed all day um, waiting for someone to come and feed you or change you or turn you. And that's that's your only activity. And I think that's the reality for a lot of people still, isn't it?
1: I think so. I think so. And we need to be moving towards a world where kind of the, I don't know, fifth generation coming of disabled people say, oh, my God, what, you couldn't get on a bus easily? Do you know what I mean? So that it's so new to them that, that it's it's shocking. A bit like what is a telephone
0: box. So <laughs> you whilst you I know your passion is is completely around disability and that's your focus, you also understand the intersectionality of it and you you're doing some work with another organization as well, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm a trustee of a, um, a charity called Parapride, um, which is an LGBTQ plus disability charity. So it's where the intersectionality of the two meet. Um, so because there is, again, getting into um, misconceptions about inclusion and accessibility, there's a massive misconception that disabled people are disabled and therefore they don't have relationships. And so this charity was brought about to recognise that disabled people are more than their impairment. But actually, they want relationships. Um, they want to be loved and love outwards as well. And that could mean lots of different things for lots of different people. And so what L- um, Power Pride specifically strives towards is um, educating and influencing venues to be accessible for disabled people. So LGBTQ Plus, venues to be accessible and inclusive for disabled people by empowering, showing people what is possible, then supporting people to know how to get there. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that's one kind of, of the, sometimes, near, sometimes. Near the reasons historically um, LGBTQ venues are not accessible um, because the venues had to be grabbed where they were. And now we're in, you know, 2021, and they're still not very accessible. Um, so it's about changing that.
0: Yeah, I I I I have heard people remark on the fact that what well, a wheelchair user is having a family, a wheelchair user has relationships, a wheelchair user has sex, how does that work? And then suddenly how can someone who is blind or, or deaf or has a an impairment in some other way, how can they be gay as well? It's kinda of, haven't they got enough on their plate to worry about without being gay and disabled? Yeah. It's like this sort of shock horror and it's like, hang on a minute. You, you're you're not seeing into the soul and the heart of the person you're looking at the skin and the shell yeah. and, and they think whoever you talk about they think in the same way as you do they think in yeah. the same way as i do yeah. i love they, they laugh they, they, they cry and they, they, they feel all the same emotions and the disability is just the shell of how they interact with society and it, it, some people are still amazed uh, that you play poker, and it's kind of I just, it's like crazy.
1: I, I kind of think maybe that that's not just to do with disability, though. That might also be to do with being a woman. Um,
0: I that's That
1: people think, oh, a woman playing poker. Um, and I, I also think it's kind of an out-of-the-blue hobby. It's not a hobby that many people do, is it? Hmm. Um, so what do you think it is to do with my disability, but also my other intersectional characteristics um, or yeah. identities um, come into that a lot as well.
0: I'm I, I, th- I yeah, I'm not going to be patronising. Yeah, I think it's important for everyone to be an ally to someone or to, to another group or to another community, because I, I could spend all my time being transgender, being in the LGBT community, but I feel that I've got some energy to be, an advocate, an ally for other people, and outside of my own, outside of my, outside of my own self, if you like, but also recognizing that we're all intersectional. We all have something about us. We, there's always, there's always more to us than that. And disability. I think you've always said in the past, it, people with disability come from all walks of life and yeah. all backgrounds and all futures, if you like. So it's it's really, really important to think about. How we can uh, bring that together. Uh, and when you first told me you were involved with Parapride, I env- envisaged people jumping out of aircraft with, with parachutes on, <laughs> sort of gay, gay, gay marines or something.
1: <laughs> I agree. The name Parapride, so the para comes from paraplegic, obviously. Yes. Um, I, I, and I, I get that. Right. <laughs> comes from being proud. But absolutely, yeah. No, sometimes it does take. And I, I agree with you. I think that we do need to. Um, that actually if we want to continue striving towards equality, we need to step up outside our own world and think about how we can support each other's by being allies. And, you know, I'm a really strong promoter of the fact that an ally doesn't have to be a formal position. So you don't need to write down somewhere that you're an ally. An ally is just about your behaviour and your compassion I, I and empathy for yeah. another person. <laughs>
0: complete I uh, completely agree, and I also think it's not—it's not something you should award yourself. It's not a medal or a badge you're trying to collect. It's something that you, that through words, deeds, and actions, yeah. that people award you. Well, I think I'm so very, very true. passionate so about true. that. So
1: true, yeah, so true. Um, yeah,
0: well, we've been nattering away now actually for a couple of hours. We we had a, we had an hour in the green room before we started, so we've been talking all morning, and I could talk to you forever, and. In fact, I'm looking forward to getting together for another another steak dinner somewhere or a game of poker in the near future when we can Let, meet let's up. Let's
1: do it. Let's go to the Empire in London. We
0: have yeah. steak and yes, poker, two,
1: two for a price of one. Probably Brilliant. not for Look the price two. of one, to be fair. You know, in a casino, it will definitely be the price <laughs> of two. But, yeah, no, let's do it.
0: Right. That's definitely that's definitely a date when we can get out there, maybe in the new year.
1: Yeah. And Brilliant.
0: So how can people get hold of you? was what's your web address? What's, what's the best way of contacting you?
1: So I am on LinkedIn um, under S.E. Hardy, um, which is my name. And um, I have a, um, a website as well, which is celebratingdisability.co.uk, um, where it has all my contact details. I'd love to get in touch.
0: And S-E, you spell E-S-I. Yeah, E-S-O,
1: S for Sierra, I for India.
0: And it rhymes with messy, messy
1: essay. Yes, it runs with messy.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well,
1: my thank you so used much. He called me when I was
0: young. He called me messy Ah, uh, Well, I, I'm sure that uh, you're quite a cute little kid at the time. <laughs> <But laughs>
1: I so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in, uh, for listening in this far please do subscribe to keep updated on future episodes of the inclusion bites podcast that's b-i-t-e-s tell your friends tell your colleagues uh share this episode with them i have a number of other exciting guests lined up over the next few weeks and months and i'm sure you'll be equally as, as inspired by them as well and also remember if you'd like to be a guest or you have any improvements on how we can improve this this show in future episodes, then please do send me an email. I welcome your feedback and suggestions to joe.lockwood at seachangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Look forward to catching you next time. Bye.